0: Well, thank you very much, choir. What a blessing that was to us to be encouraged and edified by those truths that you sang and did so, so beautifully. Um, I would like to in, uh, invite you, shouldn't be any surprise perhaps, to turn to your Bibles to the book of Colossians as we continue our study of this uh, wonderful little book which Paul wrote to the church in Colossae some 2,000 years ago. And we consider, uh, continue our, our journey here through Uh, what we know as the Christ hymn. And so uh, this morning we will be considering verse 18, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18. Hear now the word of God. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Our Father in heaven, it is our desire that Christ would be preeminent in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, in our wills, in our families, in our church, in our nation, indeed in this world. And so we pray that you would do that work even now as we're gathered here We think about our Lord's greatness. We pray that the glory of the Lord would be revealed to us. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. As your prophet said long ago. Do that work. Reveal the glory of Jesus. For we long to see it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it was in the late 18th century that a A group of American Christians were traveling to England and their friends who were staying behind said, well, if you're in London, you need to go listen to the two great London preachers, Joseph Parker and Charles Spurgeon. Of course, in the late 18th century, they didn't have the internet, right? They didn't have live streams. And so you would hear about a preacher, but you can never uh, hear his preaching unless you went and actually sat there and he preached to you. And so they said, well, you go listen to Joseph Parker, Charles Spurgeon, and then come back and tell us what was it like. And so they agreed, and, and, and they were there in, in London on a Sunday morning, and they went in to hear the great Joseph Parker preach. And, and when the service was over, uh, they, they kind of stumbled out of the sanctuary in a bit of a daze. Until finally one said, I do declare, it must be said, it cannot be denied. Joseph Parker is the greatest preacher that there ever was. In fact, they all decided we don't even need to go here, Spurgeon. I mean, how can it get any better than that? And yet someone mentioned, well, we did tell our friends that we would come back and give a report on both men. And so they, they agreed to go, and that evening they went to the... Uh, the, the Metropolitan Tabernacle to hear Spurgeon preach. And when the service was over, they kind of stumbled out of the sanctuary in a bit of a daze until one finally said, I do declare, it must be said and it cannot be denied that Jesus Christ is the greatest Savior that ever there was. I think it's this truth that the Apostle Paul is driving at in the Christ. These verses here, in verses 15 through 20 of, first, uh, of Colossians, excuse me, it's one of the greatest collection of truths condensed down of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have discovered that he put it in a hymn form, though it's somewhat hidden to us. It wouldn't have been to the original readers, this lyrical form, because Paul simply does not want to fill their minds with truth. He wants to fill their hearts with praise. Praise to this one of whom he writes. Of course, Christmas is a time of, of worship, isn't it? You, you read the, the nativity accounts, as I'm sure you had in, in, in Mark and uh, excuse me, Matthew and Luke, and, and you don't, what you don't find is Elizabeth cooking a dinner. And and uh, Zechariah lighting a tree, and Mary wrapping presents, and the angels sending out cards, and the shepherds doing a little shopping. What we see instead is Elizabeth and Zechariah and Mary and the angels and shepherds, and they're all responding in one way: in awe, and adoration, and worship. Of course, it's very clear with the Magi, for they would even declare, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have come to worship him. We'll hear the angels sing elsewhere in Scripture. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, worthy to be worshipped. The heavenly saints will sing before the Lamb, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. You see, Christians worship a person person that was born some 2,000 years ago laid in a manger in Bethlehem. History knows him as Jesus of Nazareth. Even the choir has come and led us this morning singing, come and worship. This is what we do as Christians. We worship this man, Jesus. Of course, what does that mean when we say we worship Jesus? Does that mean we sing to Jesus? I mean, the, the, the Magi I did, we read in, in Luke, uh, Matthew's Gospel, excuse me, in chapter 2, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. What does, what does that mean? Did, do they sing songs? Maybe. But I doubt it. And so they nevertheless worshipped. We worship Jesus. So does that, that simply mean we're like a fan club for Jesus? Right? We're the Jesus fan club. Do we give to Jesus what teens give to pop idols and adults give to politicians? Is that what we mean when we say I worship Jesus? Is that we saying Jesus is my hero? He's my role model? No, of course not. You see, to worship Jesus is not simply to admire Jesus, but it is to orient your entire life around Jesus to give to him unwavering loyalty, to give to him exclusive commitment, to give to him your highest affections, believing that his worth is unsurpassed and that his name is excellent and his compassion is unfailing and his condescension is wonderful and his mercy is tender and his grace is lavish. We therefore adore and we serve and we obey. We worship a person named Jesus. And that, by the way, is utterly unique in the world's religions. No no other religion uh, uh, in this world will will claim to worship a person. And they revere many persons. Muslims, of course, revere Muhammad, and Judaism reveres Moses and David, and and, Buddhism reveres Gautama. They don't don't suggest that we should worship these individuals. That would be heresy in their mind. They they would reject such an idea. And of course, the non-religious mind would reject it as well. The the modern mind shudders at the thought of worshiping another person. To exalt someone so highly is to do violence to your own self-image and your own self-esteem, which I think is perhaps the chief of American sins in our day to think badly about yourself so Christianity comes along, in particular the book of Colossians, and it makes this singular claim that there is a person, this baby in the manger, the one who grew up and lived and died, this Jesus is to be worshipped. And Paul will tell us, I think, at least three reasons why, in verse 18, uh, that Jesus reigns over the church, reigns over death, And reigns over all. Those will be the three points in this message this morning. And they're going to be out of order, I'm afraid, on your notes. But uh, you'll be able to follow along nevertheless, I'm sure. So consider, first of all, that Jesus reigns over the church. Look, once again, what Paul says here in verse 18. And he is head of the body, the church. Head of the body, the church. Now I mentioned that this is uh, a hymn. It's in a lyrical form. Um, There are two verses in this hymn, this Christ hymn, so again, look, look up in verse 15, and I'm going to uh, try to identify the, the lyrical phrases, or at least the repeated phrases at least. You notice, he is, notice that phrase, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And then we get down to verse 18, we read, he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And so you have really two verses, and then the, the subsequent verses following those kind of unfold what that means. And so the first verse, verses 15 through 17, talk about Jesus being uh, uh, Lord over, over creation. He's, he, he, every part of the cosmos has been created by him. Right, And we saw this over the last two Sundays, that, that through him, uh, all things are made, and, and everything's made for him, and everything is sustained in him. And so he reigns over all of, all of the cosmos. Now we come to the second verse of this Christ hymn, and we see Jesus reigns over the church. He reigns over the cosmos, and now we find out he reigns over the church. Which, to be honest, I think is kind of anticlimactic, isn't it? I mean, we, we've already seen that Jesus reigns over everything in the universe, including the spiritual forces of darkness. And then Paul gets to verse 18 and says, oh, by the way, he's in charge of the church too. Right? I mean, it would be like saying he reigns over all the armies of the world and the local preschool. Right? He, he, he created all life and he's good at whistling. Okay. I mean, it just you know, seem, it doesn't seem to fit, at least in... Uh, Perhaps many people's minds. I mean, you ask the average person on the street, what comes to mind when you think of the church? Right? That might be a good experiment. What, what comes to mind? What do you think about when you think of the church? And I think the man on the street, many of them are going to say, well, I, I think of a, uh, an irrelevant uh, religious club. Right? It, I, I know they're there. I don't know what they do. I mean, it's like a rotary club for Jesus. I, I'm not sure what's going on there. Or maybe some stodgy, outdated institution. Maybe some people have a positive view of the church. Maybe they'll say, well, I'm glad we have them in our community. They're nice to have around, I suppose. I'm sure they do good work. Some, some people tolerate the church. Others think it should be opposed, right? You, do, you are aware of this. There are those who think, hey, the church is, is dangerous, right? There's dangers in organized religion, right? Played like the minor chord at that point. Oh, that's very scary. Organized religion in a lot of people's minds. Uh, almost everyone kind of feels... Uh, somewhat, a little bit at least, embarrassed about the church, except Jesus. Jesus doesn't. In fact, Jesus so clo- closely identifies with the church that he calls it his body. The body of Christ. Is that not extraordinary? In fact, Paul will use this phrase many different times in scripture. In, in the book of Romans and 1 Corinthians, Paul will call the church the body of Christ in order to emphasize how we're connected to one another. And so he'll explain things like, you're the finger and I'm the toe and, and she's the ear and he's the belly and, and, and we all, we're all, all together, we put us all together and we, we make up a body, we're all united together. This is why when we receive new members at Hamilton Baptist Church, we make vows to one another to emphasize the unity and the commitment that we have to one another as the, uh, a manifestation of the local uh, church or the, the, the body of Christ. But in, in the book of Colossians, when he calls the church, the body of Christ. He does this in the book of Ephesians as well. He's not emphasizing that we're connected to one another, but he's emphasizing that we're connected to Jesus. That we, the church, is the body and he's the head. Right there, and he is the head of the body, the church. Now what does it mean that he's the head? Well, it means he's in charge. It, It means he's... Lord, it means he's king, it means he reigns. The head commands the body, the head guides the body, so Christ commands the church, he directs the church. And so he decides what we do as a church. He decides who's part of it, he decides how we worship, he decides how we organize, he decides what kind of leaders, he decides what gets taught, he decides how we behave, he decides what mission we are on. Jesus is the head. He decides. Therefore, this little church exists not simply to to get us through another year. I mean, let's see if we can make it to year 132, Hamilton Baptist Church. That's not why we exist. We exist to do what Christ has told us to do. We exist to live lives of love and forgiveness and grace. We, we, we exist to show the world, our neighbors and our families, and indeed one another, a new way to live, including sacrificial love and neighbor love and God-honoring worship and indomitable joy and peace. Right? We exist to continue the mission in which Christ has come. As the Father sent uh, me, so now I send you, he says. What is that mission? It is to make disciples for the glory of God. We exist to do what Jesus has told us to do. He is the head. We are the body. We are to follow So Why? God willing, I don't know if you've heard, we're going to plant a church in about 10 months. Right? Love it Soul Baptist Church. Why are we planting a church? Is that easy thing to do? No. Is, is that, is, is that going to send many people out of here? Yeah. Is that going to be hard? Yes. Is that difficult? Yes. Why do we do it then? Because Jesus is in charge. And he tells us to do these things. And so we follow what he says. Christ is in charge. In case it's unclear who's in charge around here, let me be very clear. Jesus is in charge. So there's no man with a, you know, a fancy robe and a big hat sitting on his throne making stuff up as he goes along. Right? We don't have some king on a throne. There's no archbishop. Praise God, there's no celebrity pastor in skinny jeans. Right? We don't, we don't have any powerful families here running the show and dictating what it's supposed to, where we're going and what's supposed to happen. We're, you know what? The elders are not even in charge in the sense that they rule the church. Now certainly the Bible is very clear that the elders have authority in the church, but their authority is only legitimate to the degree in which they follow the Lord's instruction. He is in charge. And so I will tell you, as occasionally I do, um, just to remind you, it is, by the way, a great honor for me to be a pastor, to be an elder, to be a preacher. I love doing that. I'm so thankful that I get to do that. But the far greater honor to me is not being a pastor, but it is being a member of this church. I am a member of Hamilton Baptist Church who happens to pastor. And you are a member of Hamilton Baptist Church who happens to do this and happens to do that. And together we all follow the Lord's instruction. Together we all stand on the same ground there at the foot of the cross. Together we all recognize we are sinners saved by grace. And together we look to Christ as our head and Christ as our guide and Christ to give us direction and guidance. God has, not, just as he gathered his people into Israel, now he gathers them into the church which is manifest in local bodies throughout this world and he has done so in order to rule and reign and guide us and he is able to do so because he lived and he died and he rose again. And so consider secondly that Jesus reigns over death. Look what Paul says here in verse 18. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now we've already seen in our study of Colossians that the firstborn is a reference to rank, uh, supremacy, authority. And so we see that Jesus reigns over death. He does so because he himself has been raised from the dead. Now I know I'm getting my holidays mixed up a little bit here. But it is a glorious truth that who Christ is, he is certainly not just the God in flesh, he is the Lord over death itself, the one who has been raised from the dead. This, of course, is the core, this is the heart of the Christian faith. That not only did God become a man in which we celebrate and rejoice and sing, but that man grew up and died upon a cross and three days later got up from the dead and now reigns as the risen Lord. He has victory over death. In fact, this is the the great defense of the Christian faith. No one, of course, doubts, uh, whether you're a believer or not, no one doubts that 2,000 years ago a new religious movement began, which we call Christianity. That's indisputable. No one also doubts that thousands of Jews who have been worshiping as a people on the Sabbath day, the seventh day for millennia, overnight, began to worship, change their day of worship to a, Monday, uh, to a Sunday. No one doubts that. No one doubts that those same Jews began to worship with their ancestral enemies, the Gentiles. All that is historically indisputable. It all happened pretty much overnight. They radically transformed people. The question is, what what accounts for such transformation? What accounts for such change? Something happened. What did they tell us? Well, they testified they saw Jesus rise from the dead. He got up, and they ate with him, and, and they spent time with him. Right? I mean, it is it is interesting to me that we don't know where Jesus is buried. We have no idea. Isn't that fascinating? They lost the tomb, right? Don't if you ever go to the uh, the, the Holy Lands, don't believe the tour We have no idea where he is buried. That's amazing. How is that possible? We have, listen, we have shrines for dead prophets. We have shrines for dead church leaders. You could go and and venerate the tomb of Spurgeon if if you wanted, or Joseph Parker. I don't know why you would, but you could. You could go to where they are buried, and yet there is zero historical evidence that anyone did that for Jesus. We have no evidence whatsoever. The proof is we don't even know where he was buried. I mean, it, listen, if, if a loved one dies, if a spouse dies, right, their, their, their stuff becomes important. Their clothes becomes important. Their room matters to you. Their shoes are, are sacred, right? We, we, this is all important. Why? Because these things remind us of them. But if they're alive, you don't care about their shoes, right? You tell them to put their shoes away. What are your shoes doing out? Right? If you have the person, then the things don't matter. Well, why didn't the two matter? Well, because they had Jesus. He got up, he lived. and he is alive, and we get so excited about that, not simply because it's like a, a nice way to end the story. right? The hero kind of comes back from life, and, and it all and, and, and ends happily ever after. No, no, we, there's far more importance to it. We, we, we believe that he rose, and in rising from the dead, he is beginning a new creation, namely us. And he's starting with us. And he did this in order that we could be reconciled to God. In fact, you, if you read on, and verses will consider God willing on Christmas Eve. For verse 19, it says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. There's the incarnation once again. And through him, verse 20, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. See, he bled upon the cross in order to reconcile us to God, in order that rebels may be pardoned, in order that captives may be set free, in order that sinners may be saved, in order to make us new, in order to restore us, in order to recreate us. This is the heart of the Christian faith, that Jesus died in order that we might be saved and prove that he paid for our penalty by being raised from the dead. And that if we trust him, if we yield our life to him, if we put our faith in him, that we too might be saved. The Bible tells us for if we confess uh, with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And I I share that with all who might be interested in what does it mean to be saved? In fact, a New Year's is coming up. Why not take the, you know, you're going to make a resolution maybe? Why not make a resolution to find out who Jesus is, okay, if you don't know him? Why not make a resolution to read the four Gospels? Those are the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books in the New Testament. They're the stories of Jesus. And taken, each one will take you about an hour to read. You might even say, oh, you know, in January, I'm going to read those four Gospels, just to, to see for myself who Jesus might be, that he might reveal himself to you. And you see here that what, what Paul is telling us is that Jesus has, has lived and died and rose from the dead in, in order that we might be not just saved and forgiven, but that we might enter into a new creation. It has been said that creation was made through the power of the Son. The new creation was made through the death of the Son. As he conquers our great enemy, namely death itself. I mean, he is the firstborn from the dead. He is ruling over death. It is, of course, today very popular to say death is natural. So it, I mean, people say those, death is just the, the inevitable conclusion in life. It's all part of it. And uh, we just need to get along with the program. And this is how we console people when, when, uh, when people die, at least uh, it often is in this world. Please understand, Christianity rejects that notion. And when someone close to you dies, that violent feeling you have in your heart, that bereavement, that sorrow, that sense of emptiness and loss, those feelings are not lying to you. You feel that way for a reason because death is an enemy. Death is an intrusion into this world. And Jesus Christ has defeated that enemy. He has victory over that. He has broken down the door that has barred us from the very first man. A doorway through death is now open. Jesus Christ has changed everything. There is a new beginning. There is a new start. There is a new creation. In fact, one has said the tomb in which Jesus was laid was the womb of the new creation. When Jesus stepped out of the grave, the rebirth of the universe began. Is it not interesting that Paul, right before he says he's the firstborn from the dead, he says he is the beginning. Now notice, he doesn't say he is the beginning and the, firstborn from the dead. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the the dead. He is uniting these two two together. And and if Christ is the beginning, right, he is the beginning, well that means there has to be something after that. There has to be a continuing. To have a beginning, you have to have something to follow it. Otherwise, you're not beginning anything. And so his beginningness is tied to the fact that he has victory over death. In other words, what he has begun, he has begun our resurrection. That Christ's Direction is a sign of what God will do in his people and through the church. In fact, it's, it's in Hebrews chapter six and verse 20 that says Jesus has gone into heaven as a forerunner on our behalf, a forerunner. That, that word forerunner I learned a couple of weeks ago is a nautical term uh, to describe a small boat that would carry a larger boat's anchor into harbor. Often in these ancient harbors, they had sandbars and, and, and at low tide, a large ship could not sail over the sandbar, but it still wanted the safety of the harbor. And so the forerunner would come out and it would take the large ship's anchor upon it. It would sail over the sandbar and drop that anchor into the harbor. So the ship was not yet in the harbor and yet it was anchored in the harbor. Its destiny was safe. And when the tide would eventually rise, all that ship had to do would be to pull upon that cable in order to make its way into the harbor. With that in mind, listen to these words again. Jesus has gone into heaven as the forerunner on our behalf. You see, though we're outside the haven of heaven, outside the haven of the new world, the the new heavens. We are anchored there due to the work of Jesus Christ. And one day when that tide rises for us, we will pull upon that anchor and we will enter into the Lord's Harbor. He has been raised from the dead, and therefore so shall you, Christian, and you will therefore live in a new creation for the rest of eternity. Of course, that physical resurrection begins because you've already experienced, by God's grace, a spiritual resurrection. We are told in Scripture that we must be Born again. That's not something Baptists came up with, okay? That's what Jesus said. You must be born again. And in Christ, eternal life is found if we experience that spiritual rebirth, that that being born again. The evidence of us being born again is that we have faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord, indeed, that we worship we trust him. We trust him, and therefore we are a new creation. For what does scripture says: Say, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Well, thirdly, consider this morning that Jesus reigns over all. He reigns over the church. He reigns over death. And lastly, and quickly, Jesus reigns over all for Paul adds this conclusion in verse 18 that in everything he might be preeminent. Preeminent. He's head of the church. He's firstborn from the dead. He is unrivaled in all things. He is preeminent. What that means is that Jesus is not Christian, just another one of your priorities in life. He is the page upon which all your priorities are written. He is preeminent, and therefore we orient our life around him, we follow him, we indeed obey him, we do what he says. Uh, uh, On on occasion, Allegra and I will will go out and we'll leave the kids at home, and and I'm sure you've done this many times, and we do this often, we ask the kids, hey, uh, can you get your chores done by the time we're home, right? Will 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 you wash the dishes by by the time we're home. Now, in my children's defense, washing our dishes is no small feat, okay? It's, it's a rather massive task. I remember my parents would, would do this for me when I was a kid. They would say, listen, we're going out. Uh, when we get home, uh, just make sure the dishes are done by the time we, we arrive. And, and they, they would, you know, I, I don't know, they would leave at 1, they'd be home at 5, and uh, if you're anything like me, uh, you would put that off and two o'clock would roll around and you would remember you have to wash the dishes and you think, oh, okay, I'll get to that and three o'clock will come. You say, yeah, I need, to, I need to get over to that. Four o'clock, you know, a little bit of urgency starts to slip in, um, but I, I had this uh, amazing ability to kind of suppress that and uh, get on with whatever I wanted to do. And then uh, all of a sudden uh, you hear the car coming down uh, the driveway and a bit of panic takes place and you, you run over to the, the sink and you start washing as quickly as you possibly can. Maybe you're not washing, you're just pre- just kind of throwing them in the cupboard, pe- pretending you're washing. But you never get it done before they come in. And, and, and I know my, my parents would come in, my dad would come in and, and, and look at me and look at the sink and, and say, why, why wouldn't you do what I asked you to do? Right. Did, did you not understand what I, did your dad do this? Did you not understand, son, what I asked you to do? Yeah, I understood. Was it beyond your ability to do? No, Dad, it it wasn't beyond my ability to do. Then why wouldn't you do what I asked you to do? And I wonder if some of us are going to have that conversation with Jesus one day. I I wonder if if we're going to stand before Jesus and say, you know what, Jesus, times have changed and we loved each other and You know, who really cares about a a, a marriage and a ring and and all the rest? And so we just kind of went on with what we wanted to do. And I wonder if he's going to say, well, but why didn't you do what I asked you to do? Or we say to Jesus, you know, life is expensive and and we just kind of ran out of money and we just kind of spent it all on ourselves and we we didn't have, uh, you know, really anything to to give to your kingdom and to your work. And and I wonder if he's going to say, well, but why didn't you do what I asked you to do? Or we might say, well, she hurt me so badly, and, and if I forgave her, then I kind of felt like, you know, I don't know, she'd be getting away with it. I wanted there to be consequences. And he'll say, why didn't you do what I asked you to do? And we might say, well, listen, if I talk about my faith at work, they're going to think I'm an idiot. If, 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 I, if I pray before the game or I'm there in the school cafeteria and I bow my head and pray before I, I, I eat my meal, they're going to think I'm a fool. And yet Christ might ask you, but why wouldn't you do what I asked you to do? In everything, he might be preeminent in every part of your life. Is he? Is Jesus preeminent in your life? And you might be thinking as we come to and end in our time in God's Word, this is a strange Christmas sermon. Right? I mean, we think about Christmas time and we think about, you know, coziness. I and mean, Christmas is a very kind of cozy time of year, isn't it? I mean, we got chestnuts and figgy pudding and, and um, right? We got roaring fires and one horse open sleighs. And, and, you know, what's all, what's all this about authority? What's all this about? Uh, uh, preeminence, right? Where's the hot cocoa? Where, where's the eggnog, right? Where's the ugly sweater, pastor? What, 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 why all, all this? Please understand that the Christmas story is not about coziness. In fact, I would suggest to you, if I could put it in this way, if you allow me, Christ left coziness to come to this world A world of woe, a world of opposition, a world in which he received an extrajudicial murder that was full of shame and mockery and and reviling and pain, and then experienced after that this powerful and glorious resurrection that he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, becoming obedient, obedient even to the point of death. Right, he did that. That's what Christmas is about. But that's not where it ends. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father in everything, he must be preeminent. That's what Christmas is about. That's what a Christian understands. A Christian declares, the last thing I want in this life is coziness. In fact, I understand that if I'm a Christian, I will not have all the things I would have if I wasn't a Christian. And I won't have the, the, the leisure I'd have if I wasn't a Christian. And I won't have the reputation I'd have if I wasn't a Christian because I'm not living for my financial goals. I'm not living for the home of my dreams. I'm not living so I can keep my figure. I'm not living for my grandchildren and all the rest. I live for Jesus. In everything, he is preeminent. We look at what Christ has done for us us, and we declare, I want to live for him. Indeed, I want to worship him. I want to worship him. We see this as I close in the life of Eric Little, that great Olympian who won the gold medal in the Paris Olympics in 1924 in the 400. He would describe that race saying, I ran the first 200 as hard as I could, And I ran the second 200 with God's help even faster. Well, soon after that, he prepares to board a train, or he boards a train, and there at the train gather a a group of people influenced by his athletic accomplishment. And to their dismay and confusion, this triumphant Olympian has decided to turn his back upon Athletic glory to move to China in order to teach children at a missionary school. Many conclude, what a waste of talent. What a waste. Perhaps they did so until he rolls down the window and he puts his head out of that train car and he shouts to all who have gathered, Christ for the world. For the world needs Christ. And then the Olympian began to sing with his head sticking out of that train car. Jesus shall reign wherever the sun does its successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. And off to China he would go. Just for a few more years before he would die tragically as a beloved teacher of Chinese children of the Savior of the world. What a strange life. What a waste, many might say, unless Jesus is preeminent. He is. I declare to you today, it must be said, and it cannot be denied, that Jesus Christ is the greatest Savior that ever there was. Our Father in heaven, may Christ reign in us. May he have preeminence in everything. I pray for the power and the willingness of repentance where it is needed, of faith where it is required, of transformation, which is desperately sought amongst your people. May he, his preeminence rise and grow in our hearts and minds and wills that we too might live for the glory of Jesus. For we ask it in Christ's name, amen. Amen. We invite you to stand.